This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. This edition of the BBC Music Magazine podcast is sponsored by Idagio, the leading streaming service for classical music. Enrich your life through Idagio's expertly curated playlists, exclusive recordings and original content. Give yourself the gift of classical music. Visit idagio.com slash music hyphen podcast and enjoy two months for free. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor. With me in the studio today are managing editor Rebecca Franks and deputy editor Jeremy Pound. Hello. Hello. So before we get started, head out to buy our copy of the June issue now. Better still, if you fancy subscribing, of course you do, we've got a special discount for our podcast listeners. All of you can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost right down to just £25.15. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash musicpodcast. So we'll be taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of the latest issue in a bit. But before we do, let's find out what's been in the news recently. News, news, news. Rebecca, Rebecca, what have we got this month? So I've got news of a significant legal case that's taken place in the classical music world. The Royal Opera House has lost an appeal after one of its viola players, former viola players, Christopher Goldschneider, 
suffered life-changing hearing damage uh, during a rehearsal at one of the Covent Garden uh, productions of Wagner's Die Valkyra in 2012. And they are—they have lost their case. Um, he claimed damages for acoustic shock, which has left him with really significant hearing damage. He can't do many of his normal activities. He can't. He had to give up playing. He's had to move to um, a quiet location because a lot of noises trigger the condition, the very painful con- condition. And, and this ruling has is very important because it's the first time that in a live music venue and in, in, in an opera house, that regulations around working environments and the impact of noise um, have led to to someone being able to claim damages and and not being protected by the opera house. I'm surprised it hasn't come. Another case hasn't come to fruition before, actually, because there's so much noise down in those pits, such an enclosed space and so much noise going on. And, of course, a lot of the string players sit right in front of the brass. I'm really surprised this sort of thing hasn't come up more often. What was quite interesting is that um, after the initial High Court hearing, is that the Royal Opera House seemed a little bit almost gung-ho about it. And they were saying that the ruling, which the High Court had originally said, coming down in Christopher Goldschneider's favour, said they'd kind of opposed it, saying that um, normal factory rules or rules which apply to factories and normal workplaces don't apply or shouldn't apply to the Royal Opera House because it's a place of great artistic merit and that they should be governed by different rules. Um, It almost had a touch of arrogance about it, which actually got reflected on on the appeal court's judging as well, saying they don't, you know, thought that was, you know, complete nonsense. It was interesting as well in the appeal, I think in the original ruling, they had said that hearing protection was going to have to be worn at all times by musicians, which they argued, the Opera House argued, would have a huge impact in in working practices and be complicated for musicians. Um, And they've actually said that they don't need to do that, but they do need to protect their musicians from loud noise levels. Imagine all opera uh, pits are different, but I imagine they all work on the same principle as projecting the forward as much out to the front as, uh, but not up, so that so that in fact the, the the sound goes straight out to the audience. And if you imagine that as a sort of very sh- narrow opening right at the front of the pit, that must be make for a very very painful um, experience. For well, I looked, I took a look at the um, you know the legal document, the public legal document about the ruling, and it was interesting reading about that original rehearsal. And it sounded like things had been moved, and a metre gap had been created between the brass and the viola players after there had been an initial kind of complaint. But it does sound like everyone was in, in agreement that. It was very loud in there. What I've seen very little of since the appeal, though, is um, ideas and discussions and documents about how things are going to change in future, which rather suggests to me that people don't actually know, that they've kind of been slightly scuppered but, by this But what this do you judgment. do? I mean, the Wagner Orchestra is a massive, and the brass sort of battery is huge. Uh, and, you know, you've got a vast, in some cases, 2,000-strong audience out there that wants to hear everything. I mean, what do you do? I, I suppose there are things around, I think there are arguments around the, the power of instruments now, the volume of noise that modern instruments make. Mm, yeah. I suppose also the spacing. I think they were saying that, you know, they made made this gap can you rearrange the orchestra somehow so it's not so, you know, a physical gap would make a big difference. But surely they must know what they need to do because this original judgment came out came about a while ago. They haven't had mm. a while to think about it, so they must mm. have plans in place because they can't just ignore it again. But it's Otherwise, good, the same thing will happen again. But it's a good point about the instruments being louder because back in Mozart's day, I would have thought the natural horns and natural trumpets were just a little bit more muted. And yeah. of course, the string players were more muted, certainly because of the quality of the strings they were using. So everything was just a little bit more hushed. Uh, and I think it's just grown and grown and grown and grown. And, and, and that space hasn't increased. Yeah. The music's only got louder. However, there are... 
there are far more sophisticated ways of amplifying music these days so that you can almost not notice whether it's been amplified amplified around That's the theatre. Yeah. It's a tricky situation, but if it's the answer, it may have to be what happens. I think you're probably right, actually. I mean, when you read, read about the impact that it's had on, on Christopher Goldscheider's life, it's very moving and compelling because, you know, he's really had to turn his life upside down. I mean, there are rumours, whether they're true or not, I have absolutely no idea, that parts of the Met Opera in, yeah. in New York are amplified. Um, and when you look at the space, I mean, what does that seat? 3,000? Uh, and you look at the, um, the, the stage, it's just absolutely huge. The amount of space that music has to fill is extraordinary. So it wouldn't surprise me if they put a cheeky speaker mm. here and there. So I'm going to move on to my story with a little bit of a, a musical clue. <laughs> That was, if you hadn't guessed it, Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist, playing the first movement of Bach's solo cello suite number three. Um, Yo-Yo Ma has been doing what a lot of musicians have been doing before and made a political statement going down to the boundary between... um, Mexico and uh, the United States are protesting about the planned wall that uh, Donald Trump wants to build between the two countries. Um, he's not the first to do that. Of course, uh, Rostropovich uh, celebrated the downfall of the Berlin Wall by playing on top of the, or was it in front of the Berlin Wall? Um, actually, it was, uh, it was David Hasselhoff played on top, didn't yes. he? Yes, Rostropovich played, Rostropovich played in front. <laughs> but it, it makes for it, you know, it makes for an interesting discussion about how, in fact, powerful music can be. I mean, how, what, how does it have an effect? Can music actually change things? Daniel Barenboim, of course, um, famously uses the um, West Eastern Divan Orchestra to make a political point about the Middle East and bringing you know uh, musicians of different beliefs and um, and nationalities together. So. But, but does music actually make a, a difference? One thing which is quite interesting with this one is it wasn't quite as a symbolic gesture as he'd hoped because he'd actually planned to play on the bridge which linked the US and the um, Texas border between um, Laredo and Nuevo Laredo. But sadly, they were worried about he might hold up the traffic and cause chaos, so he actually had to play next door to it. Isn't that the whole point, though? What, that he was going to hold up the traffic? Yes. I don't know, but anyway, he was told not to. So, <laughs> But um, our very own Richard Morrison, when writing for his other publication, The Times, um, was saying that he was slightly sceptical about whether they do make a difference, these these um, protests by musicians. Um, I don't think it hurts, really. I mean, it's just it's a performance and he's expressed his voice and he's entitled to do so. I'm interested as well why it's always cellist because there was the cellist of Sarajevo as well, wasn't there? Mm, and there's true. a whole novel. And I think there was a cellist who played at the Extinction Rebellion climate change protest recently. Something about cellists and making Bach. a they statement. And always play Bach as well, don't they? Yeah. They always play Bach. Well, I think it's got to do something with sitting down because you kind of you actually have to stick your chair there kind of, and you kind of, you're, you're placing yourself in a sedentary position, aren't you? Whereas if you're standing there, you can easily be moved along or whatever. And there's something, I think, visually as well, well, the cellists are very open and direct, isn't it? For sort of speaking or maybe to cellists are just a little bit more political than other musicians. I don't know. It could be are. that as well. Yes, <laughs> who knows? Anyway, so we've got a picture story. There doesn't seem to be that many people looking at the AMR playing, but um, it looks a very jolly occasion. Um, and I'm sure it was absolutely beautiful. Um, Jeremy, you've got a, a very different story for us, haven't you, this month? 
Yes, um, this is a story about um, the ANO has decided that it has to look at its doors, of all things. Um, it holds surveys after people have booked their kits and gone to their operas and asked them for their opinion. And they've had constant feedback that their front doors are too excluding. These doors date back to 1904 and they're very kind of heavy, wooden and ornate. And people are saying that they kind of feel they're shut out from what's going on inside. They don't feel as welcome as they should be. There's nice PVC ones instead. Well, they, they want to keep the doors, but they want to ha- find some way of having a glass atrium in front of them. So the first thing you see when you reach Eno's Colosseum is a sort of nice welcoming glass building, and then you go in through the, the wooden doors afterwards. Um, again, there's been some scepticism as to, is that really what's what's putting people off opera? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? <laughs> it was one of those stories that I did have to read twice to check it wasn't, or check the date that it wasn't the 1st of April. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it can make a difference, can't it? Uh, you know, the, the the aspect of a building and how you're welcomed as you go into a building. Personally, I think they're quite nice doors. They are quite heavy, but yeah. who's to say that other people... They know, do spring people... back on you quite a lot. I mean, yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean the thing, if you think about church doors as well, a lot of churches have replaced their heavy oak doors with, with glass doors, but that's basically because people assume churches are closed these days, whereas back in the 19th century, they were always open, so people you know, didn't mind a door because they knew as soon as they turned the handle they could walk straight in, and it kept the cold out. Um, but with the ENO, I, I think it's a funny old choice. You know, it's a, they are nice doors. There's a whole row of them, isn't there? And yeah. It's, 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 it's a strange building. I mean, know. it's not as if they haven't had a lot of other problems, and I kind of wonder if it's just a <laughs> shifting focus. Well, that's and as someone kind of rightly put pointed out that it's the kind of the cost of the drinks in the bar is such you know so much more important that sort of thing. If you go into the opera house and then you suddenly find you're being charged a tenner for a pint or what I don't know what the yeah. prices are exactly. In, in Probably they want to find it easier to search your bag because they've been doing that, haven't they recently? Yes, searching they've been your searching your bag, bag to make sure you don't bring in sandwiches. drinks and sandwiches in. Yeah, and showing water and everything as well. What you can't can and can't take in. And as you've just alluded to, um, ENO has actually its its press over its kind of its staffing has not exactly been positive over the last three or four years, and it has recently had the resignation of its latest artistic director. Yes, Daniel Kramer. He's been, I think, we up just three years under three years. years yes, yeah. Mm. But it has yeah. seen some successes. I mean, some of its productions have really sort of uh, bolstered its fortunes. Um, I mean, there was the uh, Carousel, which I think, although not an opera, I think that was a production that did bring in the crowds and uh, maybe translated into uh, some audiences for, for some um, of their other operas. Yeah, and I think it was this Porgy and Bess production was a, a sellout, although I don't think that was, I think that was already in the pipeline before he started. But Yeah, I think he's he's been, he's a very imaginative and sort of, he's quite outgoing director. Mm. But I think the point is that when you do have all these changes of personnel, it just creates this negative image of an organisation, and however kind of welcoming you try and make it, if it, if the press is constantly banging on about how it's a, an organisation in trouble, we get the same with football as well, with any sort of organisation. It, yeah, it's self-fulfilling. Well, that's enough about doors. Should we close the door on that one? So don't forget our website at classicalmusic.com where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read lots of reviews and a good deal more. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and we have an iPad edition. So there's no excuse to read all about what we do. So we're going to talk about this month's magazine. So uh, the cover feature first, it's going to be introduced by a quick snippet of music.
So that was the Atos Trio playing the Allegro Moderato from Clara Schumann's Piano Trio in G Minor, Opus 17. Uh, it's a wonderful cover disc this month, actually. Clara Schumann and Fanny Mendelssohn piano trios with some Robert Schumann piano music and a real chance for us to celebrate two female composers of the 19th century, one of which we're shining a light on this month for the cover. It's Clara Schumann, uh, pianist, composer, general hero of 19th century music, real promoter of Robert Schumann's music, brought up their children, was a renowned concert pianist, and a composer who we're really, really starting to appreciate these days. So it's an exciting piece um, that we've got. It's obviously to celebrate her 200th anniversary, so ripe time to do it. Yes, what what is interesting in there is um, Jessica Dushan, the writer, looks at kind of why we don't know more about Clara Schumann's compositions and why she didn't compose more. Um, And sadly to say, a lot of it was the the traditional role of the woman in the 19th century is that she had to spend an awful lot of time bringing up a very large family, um, but what was quite interesting is even when her children were reaching maturity, um, you'd have thought she'd have had a bit more time on her hands and could actually express herself more musically, that she didn't compose loads more then. I've, that's kind of one of those intriguing, unanswered questions, isn't it? It's interesting because she composed a lot when she was um, a teenager. So she was a, a prodigy at the piano. Her father was a formidable, renowned piano teacher who Robert Schumann also went to study with, how, how they met. Um, and she was trained really in that kind of virtuoso tradition of being able to, you know, she wrote a piano concerto when she was a teenager, was writing sort of virtuoso pieces for her own her own sort of display but also her father kind of grounded her in um, compositional technique but yeah it does seem that then later she kind of wrote some songs and the, the piano trio which is considered her masterpiece but um yeah it was the, the, the her performing career which is the thing that really was her life in a, in a way and yeah she didn't want to go back to composing it seems for whatever reason I, th- I think it's a whole mixture of, of I mean, bringing up that many children, of course, and obviously, you know, the responsibilities as a mother doesn't stop when they leave home and and obviously the, the society pressures, I mean... Well, and also it was, you know, I think Robert Schumann probably wasn't an easy person to, you know, they had a, a complicated relationship and he had severe mental health issues and, uh, you know, there was... A, she was also the breadwinner having to actually go and earn the money to <laughs> to keep them going. Yeah. Yeah, and though she also comes across as she had a very strong personality, very um, strong, yeah. Not least in her when she expresses her views about other composers. There's that we have a wonderful <laughs> yeah. um, column in the magazine where she's saying what she what she really thinks about Wagner. Um, so you feel that she would never have been cowed by anyone. It wasn't a case of she was always kind of insecure. Um, there must have been other reasons why she just simply simply didn't. Well, and also by all accounts, she was just just a, a fantastic pianist so in a way you know if that was the thing that really brought her kind of full fulfillment and pleasure in her life and also paid the bills and paid frankly. the bills then you'd probably spend your time on that wouldn't you <laughs> i mean i get the sense she was very conservative in her tastes and i i, I probably think that, that that she wasn't very keen on robert schumann's late work she tried to discourage him really and she tried to basically I think that was praise the... his early stuff and the popular stuff i mean that was probably i think it was the stigma he... of the mental health issues though mm. i think there was a lot around that that later in his life they, they felt like they, that was something that couldn't be talked about or acknowledged in but a way but didn't listen her sort of clash list uh, so, yeah. yeah pretty badly <laughs> and of course the, the wagner thing i mean she detested Wagner. Yeah, she hated Liszt's showmanship at the piano because, again, she was a very traditional 
was yeah. suggested, mm. concert pianist who did the things correctly. Um, there's a description for her teaching that all the fingerings have to be exactly in the right position, yeah. etc. There's no room for showmanship of, the, of this style. Um, and I think that probably, they clashed on that front as well. But she played from memory as well, didn't she, Richard? That was just developing at that time. I think it's often mm. attributed to Liszt, actually, really. But I think she was really at the forefront of performing from memory too. So... I imagine there were lots of points of conflict. Fascinating <laughs> yeah. figure, certainly. What's, ma- what's, magi- what's magical to read about, actually, the effect that she had on these great composers. So, you know, the fact that Brahms put a cello solo into his second piano concerto, slow movement, and she'd already done that with her own piano concerto. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's lovely to read that sort of thing, as much as it is when you worked out, the, you know, going to Fanny Mendelssohn, that apparently Queen Victoria's favourite song was one by Felix Mendelssohn, which actually happened to be by Fanny. So, um, you know, it's really nice to sort of read these revelations. And also we've spoken to um, some performers who are playing her music this year or have played and performed and championed it in recent years. And I really love that piece because it just really, people enthusing about her music and sort of talking about her melodic gift, her craftsmanship, you know, the, the kind of the, the complexity beneath, beneath the simplicity that makes her music so worthwhile. Rebecca, you're going to move on to Alma Mahler now. Yes, yeah, so this is a piece um, about Alma Mahler, who was clearly a f- another formidable and remarkable woman who had men lusting after her with a scary intensity. She was married to Gustav Mahler among her various husbands, and her reputation has sort of been described as one as a, a boundless narcissist. But in this feature, um, so Barry Millington and Deborah Calland have collaborated on this feature. They kind of take a look at her life and um, see how a recently rediscovered song that she wrote uh, when she was 20 could maybe suggest that actually she was a rather troubled soul and it's rather less kind of her as a narcissistic seductress that well, again, she's she been also, conveyed as. Well, again, her partners weren't exactly easy, you know. I mean, it's very easy no. to see why some of these people might have been driven slightly to distraction. Well, I mean, that story I mean, of... I I mean, good grief. And Oscar Kokoschka, I mean, this is the most remarkable story. After they split up, he... He had a, a life-size doll created of her that was sort of covered in feathers that after they split up, which he eventually decapitated. I mean, that's <laughs> uh, unbelievable. And with Marla, there's that famous quote of his, which is really obnoxious, where he writes to her saying that, I can't remember, I, I paraphrase, but it's something like, your your one duty in life is now to serve me as a as a wife to a husband. Their, and it's extraordinary. In their prenuptial arrogant. agreement that she had to give up composing before mm. they got married. Well, it's the same with Amy Beach and the American composer, Amy Beach. You know, she was um, forbidden from composing because she had to be the housewife and look after this. Well, that was, I mean, that was then what the wife did. I mean, we're just talking about a different era. It just seems such a shame, such great talents. Uh, yeah, I mean, I find it really shocking, really, <laughs> that, that that was able and that was... I mean, she, agreed, she did agree to it, but not under, you know, I don't know, who knows, but... Yeah, there's interestingly, as talking about her sort of slightly flirtatious nature, um, the, the conductor Michael Tilson Thomas, who of course is still going strong today, um, he recalls how when she was because she went on to live to quite a good old age, mm. he met her in her final years, and when he was a very young man, and apparently she flirted with him then. It's a, <laughs> a story which he loves to tell. It's because she went over to America, didn't she? she was sort of right. a regular figure in New York, and yeah, she died as a U.S. citizen, so that's where her her final home was. It's a fascinating story, actually, and it's it's also fascinating to know that there's a song which you can hear that's by all counts very beautiful. Yeah, and hopefully it'll make people a little bit more sympathetic towards Alma Mahler because she has not had the best press over the years. 
No, no, absolutely. Um, Jeremy, you're going to take us on to a uh, legendary uh, time in 1980s Cardiff Singer of the World. Yes, and I'm going to preface it with the wonderful voice of Dmitry Forostovsky. So that glorious voice you heard there, that wonderful baritone, was the voice which won the Cardiff Singer of the World in 1989. Now, those with any ability of maths will spot that that is 30 years ago this year. So um, Cardiff Singer begins in about two weeks' time, this year's edition of the Cardiff Singer of the World. But this was the competition which really put it on the map. Um, Cardiff Singer of the World actually begun in 1983, first winner ever was Karita Matila. But then in 1989, two of the singers in the final were Dmitry Forostovsky and Bryn Terfel, who was the local boy. Um, and it was an extraordinary final. Thanks to TV, you can still see loads of it on the web. Um, Forostovsky sung an amazing performance of Verdi. Um, and then Bryn came on and sung equally fine Wagner. Um, as a result, it became known as the Battle of the Baritones. Um, there were actually three other singers in the final. <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> all three of them have gone on to very fine careers themselves, but they've had to they've been kind of wiped from history um, in the memory of this extraordinary competition. Um, and, of course, very sadly, Vorostovsky died um, in 2017. Um, Bryn is still going strong. Uh, but it really has... It's what made Cardiff Singer really the competition it is today. And so... We've done a timepiece feature where we look back at that event in 1989 and just recall what happened. But wasn't Bryn so blasé about, you know, he didn't think he'd win, that he probably, you know, threw all his sort of um, various uh, um, preparations out the window and just sort of went in and said, well, I've got nothing to lose, I'm just going to sing. And He had set his sights very low as far mm. as he was concerned because he had started off taking, he'd taken up singing at a fairly late age. He'd moved down to Cardiff and he saw himself as being a jobbing singer with Welsh National Opera. That's what he'd set his stall at. Whereas Forostowski had already won a couple of major competitions, had the world opening ahead of him mm. and knew that he was onto the big time. So they, they, they came into the competition with such different aspirations. And in the piece, actually, um, Forostowski says that he came on stage after Bryn, but he could hear Bryn singing through kind of speakers in the dressing room and just went, oh, wow, cripes, <laughs> this ain't going to be so easy after all. Interesting. Um, and yes, the judges apparently were just neck and neck. They just simply couldn't decide who was actually going to win it. And eventually it was Vorostovsky. Yeah. But the two of them went on to perform on stage together, had huge mutual respect. Yeah. Um, and just two of the world's greatest singers. Of and Bryn era. actually won the song prize that and year. Bryn won the song prize as well. Yeah. yeah. So actually, they both they both won. They in, both in won. Ways. <laughs> <laughs> both got amazing. I mean, you as you just heard that, um, Forostowski, what a loss because his voice was just it's this incredible. kind of mellifluous, very different from Bryn's voice. Actually, Bryn's is a lot more sort of I wouldn't say rough edge, but kind of more strident. Whereas Forostowski's is more sort of it's got that dark velvetiness in very it, hasn't velvety, it? Yeah. yeah, I'm quite excited this year because I think they're going to be broadcasting on television live for one of the first times, I think, actually they're going oh, to be fantastic. actually um, showing it as it happens, as it unfolds, which I, I'm quite excited yeah, about. Yeah, it'll be a good watch. It's definitely because... one of those competitions where you can you, you want to watch it all and you see your favourites and see how they're, they're doing. I think I listened a couple of years ago, um, I think it was BBC Wales, one of the, the Welsh radio stations, and they have Wynne Evans and Rebecca Evans doing a... a, a 
in-depth every day kind of analyzing the the different contestants and it's just i guess it's like any sporting event in a way you kind of latch on to you know mm. who's doing well that particular and, and, day and of course like a competition you want to see it live and Definitely. actually much more exciting that way much yeah. more exciting So before we share with you our wonderful musical discoveries for this month, we're going to tell you how you can get involved in sharing your own musical discoveries. So if you're on Facebook, you can have a go and join in on our listening room, which is one of our uh, which is one of our groups on our social media page. There's also a chance for you to email your discoveries at music at classical-music.com. So you can tell us all about the um, discs and recordings you've been listening to. But also on Apple Music, we've got a playlist that refreshes every single week called The Playlist. And it's a selection of some of the recordings that we've been enjoying over the past seven days. But we're going to kick off now with our own uh, special recordings that we've been rooting out. Jeremy, you're going to start. My choice is the orchestral music of Jonathan Dove. It's performed by the BBC Philharmonic and conducted by Timothy Redmond. Now, we're going to be meeting Jonathan Dove in our July issue, actually. Kate Mollison will be interviewing him. There's a reason why we're celebrating Jonathan Dove this year, because it is his 60th birthday this year. Um, he's also recently returned to the Salisbury International Festival as its artistic director, and he's got very strong links with Salisbury. And he also has music for his being performed at the proms this year. Now, this is a lovely disc. It's on Orchid Classics, and it's of, just say, as the title tells you, a number of his orchestral works. The one I have chosen here is called The Ringing Isle, and it dates from 1997. Um, inside the sleeve notes, which are very well written, it explains what's going on, and actually there's all sorts of reflections of different types of bell ringing and different changes, and it says it's rather clever how he works it all into the score. But when you hear the bit we're about to play now, I think it's got elements of John Adams, a little bit of Holst even, and definitely there's kind of kind of track kind of marks of um, Britain as well, the kind of four C interludes. See what you think. Very four C interludes. Very four C yeah. interludes. Yeah. A wonderful orchestrator, isn't he? Yes, he is. And actually, the performance performances on it are superb. And I also ought to add that there's a track which is for um, countertenor. It's a long piece actually for countertenor and orchestra, and that's sung by Lawrence Zazzo. So it's not just orchestral music. Fantastic. Well, look out for that. Uh, what label is that on? That's on Orchid Classics. Orchid Classics. Rebecca, what have you brought this month? Um, I have brought a really fascinating album from Ifagellini and Robert Hollingworth, which is to mark the 500th anniversary of Leonardo da Vinci, one of the world's great uh, polymaths. <laughs> um, so this programme, I mean, you could listen to it if you wanted as a standalone choral album. However, you can also go to their website um, and they have essentially built the programme around a selection of images that has been made by Professor Martin Kemp, one of the world's experts on Leonardo da Vinci. So the idea is that they've chosen these uh, pictures, designs, um, 
sketches, all sorts of different things that Leonardo has created. And that has inspired this programme of music. They're not necessarily directly linked. In fact, most of them aren't directly linked. And it's very varied lineup of composers from early to modern, from Josquin to there's a new commission by Adrian Williams. And it's a completely fascinating experience, actually. And I would definitely advise going to their website and they've got good versions of all the images and, and having that on while you're... Yeah. It's quite theatrical, them. isn't it? It's a sort of battle cries and yes. all sorts of... Yes, it's a very rich sort of sonic experience. Not just an album, it's very much a bit of theatre almost. Well, it's just interesting how much they interact, the images and the music, actually. And you can... Uh, there's space for you to read whatever you want into it. So, But I've just chosen for this... Um, uh, and one of the, I think it's the second track on the album, which is uh, Houses Salvatore Mundi, which goes with the uh, Salvatore Mundi image, which is the picture of Christ that sold for $450 million and has since pretty much gone missing. No one really knows where it is. Is it a fake? <laughs> yes, there's, there's doubts over its provenance, isn't there, as well? So. Yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's a piece of talus as well, which you could also listen to um, with this with this painting. But I rather like the howls. So Leonardo uh, Shaping the Invisible uh, is performed by E. Fagellini and conducted by Robert Hollingworth, and that's on the Coro label. So I make no apologies whatsoever for choosing an organ disc, uh, particularly because uh, this organ uh, disc was released in the shadow of the news of um, Paris's Notre Dame having um, sustained huge damage from a, a, a quite um, spectacularly horrendous fire. Um, we've since discovered that the organ hasn't been as harmed as we thought it would. But just days after the fire happened, in fact, I think it was actually days before the fire happened, this beautiful recording, Bark to the Future, um, uh, selections of uh, bits of Bark played by Olivier Latry on the romantic organ in Notre Dame was released. And um, it, I think it's just a very uh, moving recording, uh, apart from the fact it's brilliantly played and, and, and the music is so wonderfully and imaginatively treated. So we're just going to hear an extract from the Fantasia and Fugue in G minor by Bach, uh, performed, as I say, on the Cavaille organ at Notre Dame. So there's Olivier adding all sorts of bits to the uh, to the original work, but it's it really it takes on a real 
gothic tone, I think. Um, and that's on the La Dolce Volta label and is out now. So that brings us to the end of the June issue podcast. Do join us next month, and it's the special proms issue next month, so we'll be all promsy, uh, no doubt, ready with our BBC Proms programme. So until then, it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast.